0: Be fruitful. Multiply. Take dominion. That's the mandate God gave Adam that we fulfill today in the home, the workplace, and the broader society. But Christians are called to preach the gospel to the world and make disciples. Is this a separate task or maybe a new dimension of the original marching orders?
1: To understand mission as beginning in the garden and beginning with Adam makes mission fundamentally a proactive endeavor. When we don't start at the beginning of the story, we can begin to think the goal is to just get people out of hell. When we begin with Adam, we see that God has an actual mission for this earth to manifest his glory throughout creation.
0: Today Matt Newkirk shares what it means to fill the earth. But first, a word from ABWE president Paul Davis.
1: ABWE missionaries are coming beside the lost and the hurting around the world. And through the Global Gospel Fund, they're pulling people from the darkness and training them as leaders. They're planting churches, and they're even beginning their own missions movements. You may already support one ABWE missionary. Would you consider a gift to the Global Gospel Fund to support
0: all 1,000 of our missionaries? Thank you for that. Become a partner today at abwe.org slash global gospel fund. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Communications for ABWE, joined by Scott Dunford, West Coast Mobilizer, lead church planter for Redeemer Church in Fremont, California. And Scott, I have had very little on my mind lately outside of house life, outside of baby life, since we welcomed our third little one into the world. And let me just throw something at you and then hear your reaction to it. Sound good? Yeah, let's do it. You know, there's this tension. I even remember we talked about it in our past interview with Michael Foster, but this tension between evangelism outside the home and and discipling your little ones at the breakfast table and raising them up in the fear and nurture of the Lord. And there's this tension between the Great Commission in terms of outreach, in terms of going, uh, making disciples among the the unreached, the unevangelized, versus the creation mandate, the cultural mandate, the taking of dominion, the leading of your household that you see all the way going back to Eden and, and what humans are designed for, that natural flourishing that sort of happens in the realm of creation. Sometimes, maybe it's just me, these things feel like they're intention. Am I the only one who's ever
2: had thoughts dividing those things, maybe arbitrarily? Uh, he, no, you're not. <laughs> I think that's something that, uh, you know, we've we've done a very good job of of uh, finding ways to make religion and Christianity very guilt-based. Mm. And uh, I, th- I, th- I think there's that al- element of it where you just feel like so guilty that we're not doing something we, we feel like we ought to do um, because someone said we ought to do it. I, I really think that there's stages of life right and you you j- just like you're not required to be a good husband when you're nine um <laughs> I I but you are you know once you're married and now that you're I don't know 26 27 uh you know you and you're married you've got these different responsibilities and I think that's kind of the way it is right now for you I mean you're I'm not I'm not 26. Or twenty seven. Just for the record, you're young. Just so people you're, know, you're only twenty five.
0: Higher, higher. Man, anyway, I always thought you were move, younger. Move along, move
2: along. Um, <laughs> but you know, you have stages in that, and what you're doing and evangelizing and discipling and your your family is crucial right now, and it's going to be crucial for you know the time of a type of attention you have to give to it now is different. So, I would say, take a break, rest easy. Uh, fulfill what God's given you right in front of you and take care of your wife right now and loving those kids. <laughs> well, and,
0: and I love that because, you know, we have everyone listening to this show from missionaries that are pioneering on the field uh, to moms at home who might be listening to this with their AirPods uh, while they're going about household work or dads for, for that matter. Uh, I was vacuuming earlier listening to a podcast. So but I, our guest today I think would also share this idea that maybe these things aren't quite as opposed to each other as we often
2: think they are. And we're going to talk to Matt Newkirk. Tell us about Matt. Well, Matt is a missionary in Japan and uh, he works at a seminary there. We'll let him talk a little bit about that and has come out with a new book based off his dissertation work um, called Fill the Earth. So, Matt,
1: welcome to our show. Well, hi, Alex and Scott. Thank you so much. and really, really thankful to be here and yeah, delighted to spend this time with you. Um yeah. So my name is Matt Newkirk. I'm uh, married uh, to my wife, Caroline. We are married 15 years this year. And we have four kids and ranging in raging age from eight to all the way down to four. Fun. And we live in Nagoya, Japan. Nagoya is a city about the size of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, much less well known, uh, certainly in the Western Hemisphere than, than places like Tokyo or Osaka. Uh, but we're right in the middle. We're in the central region of Japan. And I serve at a seminary called Christ Bible Seminary. And it was actually founded the, the year that my wife and I were married. So it's all, it's also celebrating its 15th anniversary this year. It's awesome. Yeah. And so at the seminary, I serve as president and as professor of Old Testament. And so my responsibilities, I, I have the joy of, of leading our, our faculty and staff and shepherding and teaching our students. And, um, you know, our mission as a seminary is to equip Christians in Japan for the work of gospel ministry. It's quite straightforward. Just this year, uh, in the spring, I had, uh, this book, uh, published called fill the earth, the creation mandate and the Church's is called mission. So yeah, it was interesting to hear you guys talk there at the beginning about, you know, oftentimes we, we tend to think of the creation mandate or as, as Alex, as you mentioned, often it's referred to as the cultural mandate, uh, as sort of one thing. And then the Great Commission is often conceived of as uh, another, and and actually in some in some you know missiological literature, uh, occasionally that it, there has been quite a quite a sharp contrast drawn between the two.
2: The things you bring up in your book, you know, when I say controversial, I don't mean like Nicene Creed controversy, but but, uh, but they are things that missiologists talk about a lot. And actually, we have people on our show and that listen that are going to like disagree. So I'm excited about this because I think this really challenges some of our thinking. So when I started reading the book right in the very beginning of the book, you kind of start us off with this. Uh, very for me, uh, growing up in in uh, Christian circles, uh, a type of fundamentalism. But I think that's is true for anyone that grew up in evangelicalism or fundamentalism um, about you know being at this mission conference and and it's, so you share this early in the book and how this this idea of the Great Commission was kind of pushed on you in a really odd way. So. I just want you to maybe tell us that story, but tell us what, what pushed you to do the research that you did and, and pushed you into missions and and to, to basically come out with this book that the fill the earth. Can you tell us a little bit about that process?
1: Yeah. So when I was in uh, the story that I start the book off uh, with is a story of when I was in college. So going back some, you know, 20 plus years ago, um, I was at a, a conference and uh, it was a, for a, co- a conference for college students. And, and uh, the speaker on this one particular night was uh, speaking on the Great Commission, Matthew 28, uh, 18 to 20. And toward the end of his talk, he gave a very impassioned plea and kind of a call that I imagine many of us have experienced at one time or another, uh, challenging everyone there to respond to Jesus' words. He says, You know, Jesus has said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And so he challenged us to devote a year of our life to the work of missions. And by that, of course, what he meant was to go to some other uh, people group or nation and serve in full-time vocational ministry. And, you know, being college students, you know, often we are very, get very excited about a variety of things. And so the, the response uh, at that, at that, from that talk was quite uh, overwhelming. And so he had actually had a big, there was a giant poster in the front of the room, and he had said, uh, challenged that anyone that would take up this Great Commission challenge, he called people to come down and actually sign their names on this big white poster. And so there's you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people going down and signing their names. And and I I stayed put. I didn't get up. So I start, I start off a book on, you know, on missions with that story. <laughs> and uh, Of you not being willing to go forward. <laughs> yeah. Of, of, my, of my stubbornness. Yeah. Hey, at and, least he's honest. Yeah. And, uh, but, but the reason that I, I to, tell that story is because at the time, as I was listening to the talk, it wasn't necessarily that I had any, any problem with his exposition of Matthew 28 or not even necessarily that I didn't, I mean, I certainly did not believe that missions was an unimportant element to the church's life or anything. Um, but I remember thinking to myself, I feel like this guy's making too big of a deal out of missions. He is sort of, uh, taking this one passage, this one command of Jesus and Jesus commanded all sorts of things. And he's making kind of this macro application of it. And it seemed like he was just making too big of a deal of it to me. And and so I did not respond. It was not successful. I didn't sign my name and I thought, well, I'm going. I'm not going to go do this. And and so as in my life as as time went on, I uh you know, years passed and um I met my wife and we got married and I entered seminary. And when I entered seminary, um I I was entering seminary with a view toward going on for further study, doing a PhD and probably becoming an academic. Uh, I'm more Cerebral and disposition, and that seemed like a good, a good path for me. Well, my first year in seminary, I had a couple of classes in particular taught by an Old Testament professor, uh, who is has moved on from this seminary now. is a man named Richard Pratt. He's actually the now the president of a ministry called Third Millennium Ministries, and they do all sorts of great work for uh, mm. uh, seminary education around the world uh, that they're putting on on video. Uh, but, anyways, back then he taught uh, on the campus of Reformed Theological Seminary where I went to school, and two classes that I took from him in particular really just transformed the way that I viewed the Bible, thought about the church, viewed the world, thought about myself. I mean, it was really, really disruptive <laughs> to to the way mm-hmm. I had just viewed reality and, and everything. And right from that process, and basically the, what has become fill the earth, the seeds for that thinking were, were laid. In those, in that first year, in when I was in seminary, which was also fifteen years ago, the first year of my marriage, so oh, everything <laughs> Every comes back to, <laughs> everything. to to that time. Oh, I, I want to
0: get deeper into that type of thinking that you're referring to, though. You said this type of thinking that's in Fill the Earth, and our listeners are thinking, "Well, I haven't read Fill the Earth, and I've, I'm holding a copy in my hand. Scott's got a copy in his hand as well." One of the things you write about is the missio dei, the miss, the mission of God, um, in, in the world. Uh, we often start by talking about our mission, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. We, we immediately jump to what we're uh, responsible to do. You start with the Missio Dei. Define that for our listeners. Uh, why is that the foundation? What does that have to do uh, with our role?
1: So, the Missio Dei is, is a Latin phrase that simply means the mission of God. And um, in, in, in missiology, especially in the last you know, 50, 60 years in particular, uh, this concept has really come to the fore. And it's the idea, you know, like you said, um, for a lot of, uh, I would say, certainly North American evangelicalism, we often tend to start with what does God want us to do? What is God commanding us to do? And, and that's not necessarily a wrong question. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's helpful to go a step beyond that and to ask the question, what is God trying to do? What is God trying to accomplish? What is God's mission? What is God's objective? What is God's goal? Why did God create? What is He hoping, yeah. um, or what is He planning uh, uh, to have happen in this creation that He has made? And so, the missio dei is really, in some ways, kind of addressing that issue. What is God's mission? And and so this is this is really, in many ways, what was transformative. I was talking about my early days in seminary, was sort of being introduced to that idea, and. And so in terms of uh, fill the earth, um, the way I try to address this is is looking at, well, if we want to understand what is God's purpose in creation, we need to go and look at the creation account. Um, And and so in looking at the creation Mm. account, you can see uh, a few things going on. God uh, creates the world uh, by speaking, and he uh, assembles the world into a... um, a particular uh, physical space he creates uh, separates um, various spheres of creation. Then he fills those spheres with um, rulers. So you have the the sun and the moon, and then you have the fish and the birds, and then you have the animals and the humans. And and with humans in particular, we're described as God's image. And this is a very significant um, element in the argument to fill mm-hmm. the earth that. Uh, in when God says, "Let us make man," you know, tr- in, in English, it's traditionally translated, "Let us make man in our image." I'm personally not a big fan of that language. We don't speak that way. It's it's kind of biblish or Christianese to say something is in our image. Um, uh, a, 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 another very adequate way to translate that Hebrew is, "Let us create man or humanity as our image." And interestingly, that's actually how the Japanese translation mm-hmm. very directly translates Genesis 126 is let us make man as our image. And, and the, the idea there is that the image of God and the way that this is often discussed, the image of God is not some constituent part of us. It's not simply our intellect or not simply our ability to reason or our morality. Yeah. Um, it's not some immaterial aspect of it that we are as human beings, the image of God. And and of course, there is a very significant ancient Near Eastern background to this. That in, in antiquity, um, kings w- ruled over realms, and they would distribute images of themselves, which would have been you know, three dimensional statue like, um, you know, either figurines or some sort of physical structure that they would put. In, and the function of the image was to represent the reign and the authority of the king. And and on occasion, actually, kings and emperors themselves were referred to as the image of God. That is, they were they represented the deity's reign on earth. And then similarly, they distributed images of themselves. Mm, yeah. And so the idea going on here is that, you know, for, for a, an earthly king, however widely distributed their image was, that was how great and glorious their their reign was, how far their realm extended. And so when God says in Genesis one twenty six, let us make humanity as our image. He is saying that, well, this, this human beings, the crown of my creation, they are my officially sanctioned royal representatives on the earth. If we're going to really interpret sort of the grammar right. of this phrase within its cultural context, that's what it means to be a human being is to be a God representer on the earth.
0: And that continues even after the fall, which is something important. You know, I think we can easily chop up redemptive history um, and think, well, Adam fell and that all failed, but there's, there's still remnants of that. That hasn't fundamentally changed. Obviously there's elements of that that are fulfilled in Christ, but you don't throw that away on this side of Genesis three.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and even in specifically in Genesis nine, after the flood, God repeats when, when he gives the, uh. The sanction for capital punishment to no one his sons, he says, you know, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for as the image of God has God created man, he gives the image of God is the reason why we are not to kill or murder somebody else is because we are God's image because we represent him we are, we have a we have a, a God centered focus to our existence. And so, to kill another human being, to murder unjustly, is to diminish God's representation on the earth. So it's it's very much a vertical offense, in, in as much as it is a horizontal one.
2: So I, I want to take this and kind of connect it to, uh, to to where we're going with missions. Okay. So one of the things you talk about in your book is 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 that like, a lot of theologians, even some pretty well known and trusted theologians, especially in our circles, have argued for a lot of different. Things about the Great Commission. One being that the Great Commission is just for the New Testament. It's the New Covenant people of God, and actually, in the Old Testament it was more of a focus on Israel and the nation of Israel. Um, but you argue that the Great Commission is actually rooted in this very important concept of our humanity and the fact that we are made in the image of God, um, and that it because of that it predates the Old Testament. Or the old covenant; it predates even the, obviously the new covenant, the church. So, what what difference does that distinction make for for missions? How in the world can missions be tied all the way back to the fact of our, our very basic humanity, made in the image of God? In other words, in what way was Adam
0: a missionary of sorts?
1: Uh, yeah. So that's that's uh, yeah that's a great question. So um, you know, w- with that foundation of humanity as God's image. Uh, And then kind of circling back and connecting this to the issue of the Missio Dei. um, What we see in God's first reported speech to humanity. So after we're told that we are God's image in Genesis 1.28, it says God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And it talks about ruling over the other creatures. And so and as much as an ancient king would distribute images to reflect the extent of his reign, here God is telling his images exactly how far and wide he wants them to spread and represent the glory of his reign. And he says, fill the earth. And so hence the title of the book. Mm. So what I argue in the book is that God's mission is that his kingship will be represented to the ends of the earth. And it's basically drawn out of that rationale, humanity as his image, this uh, original, we could say commission, the first great commission to humanity in Genesis 128 to fill the earth, that that is God's mission. That's God's objective is to manifest the supremacy of his kingly glory throughout this creation that he has made. um, and to do so through the earth filling movement of his representative images, that's, that's God's mission. And, and so therefore the mission of humanity, the mission of Adam is to fill the earth and thereby represent the fact that God is king over the entire earth. So that um you know to uh to speak to Alex's you know question how in what way was Adam a uh, a missionary in the sense of one being sent on a particular task or a mission that that was his task. So for Adam and Eve and and of course in Genesis 2 we see that God also has a uh, a requirement for his images to Uh, treat him as king to be faithful to his word, hence the the law of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so if Adam and Eve had been faithful, had treated God as king, had obeyed his kingly word, his decree, and had refrained from eating of just this one tree, God, you know, says freely eat, you may eat of any tree in the garden. So he's a very gracious king. Um, But of this one tree, you shall not. And this was a way that they could demonstrate his supremacy, their submission to him as king. Then if they had been faithful, then they would have procreated been fruitful they would have multiplied they would have spread and they would have filled the earth and demonstrated the glorious reality that God is king of the world um, but of course as we know uh, Adam and Eve failed to treat God as king they listened to the word of the serpent and they rejected god's kingship and so that kind of you know puts the whole program uh, onto a different track and so then they're uh, banished from his presence and then we Enter what we refer to as redemptive history, where God immediately promises that an offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and that he will bring redemption to his people. So then we have the history of redemption. You know, the question was asked, how how is this relevant to the work of missions now?
0: And one thing just for the readers to know is what what I love what you do is you take each phase of the redemptive history program that's unrolling throughout uh, the Old Testament and you frame that in terms of mission. You know, the, the exile represented that Israel had failed its mission, right? That they weren't a light to the nations and, and God let them taste the repercussions of that. Even just some of the titles that you assign to those phases in Israel's history are incredibly helpful. Uh, but we do want to see how that ties into mission today. Uh, let's take a quick break first, Matt, and then we'll come right back. We're going to come right back with Matt Newkirk, author of Fill the Earth, The Creation Mandate and
2: The Church's Call to Missions. Hi, I'm Scott Dunford, and I'd like to share with you about a new nonprofit ministry established to help churches, Christian schools, and other ministries protect children and prevent abuse. Rich Hamar from Church Law and Tax states that the number one reason that drives churches to court is child sexual abuse. I can't think of anything more devastating to these lives, their families, and our witness before a watching world than sexual abuse that takes place in ministry. The traumatic impact often leaves the vulnerable not wanting anything to do with God or His people. Our efforts toward evangelism, discipleship, is to spiritual formation are not only neutralized but shattered. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention was formed to help ministry leaders understand the complexities of child protection and abuse prevention. They are establishing standards and an accreditation program that will help verify that appropriate measures are in place at your church or ministry. Learn more about them. Find a helpful and free assessment tool to help you see how you measure up in this area. Go to abuseprevention.org and click on the link for this resource assessment. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention. And this June, attend the
0: National Conference. Go to abuseprevention.org Org and register with ABWE21 as the promo code to receive 20% off your ticket. That's promo code ABWE21 to receive 20% off. Brooks Buser, president of Radius
1: International. I am here with Mark Dever, senior pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist and president of Nine Marks. When you go to a culture that's a different language than yours, you're ending up in a kind of majority language that's been reached and there are other peoples still more hidden, and it's those people who are often almost entirely unreached, and they take more cross-cultural effort. Is there a way we can better train people to have more realistic expectations of what life is like in the kind of two steps away from my culture, and be able to sustain family life with its normal difficulties there, so that there can be a long years and or even decades long witness in that culture. And it seems like Radius is set up to provide that training. Radius is about reaching unreached people groups. Go to RadiusInternational.org. RadiusInternational.org.
0: And we're back with Matthew Newkirk, author of Fill the Earth. And we're talking about how God's mission is manifested in the mission of his people filling The earth with God's glory. Adam was a missionary of some sort uh, in that he was responsible to fill the earth with uh, the glory of God. And you get all the way to the second Adam, Christ, who's given a dominion mandate of his own with his wife, the bride of Christ, and she's told to fill the earth with disciples, not with just biological children. And so it's really fascinating that you see there that mandate that's given is repeated in a way in the Great Commission. And Matt, what we're trying to figure out is how does understanding this, how does that actually translate into what the church is called to do on mission today and what individuals are called to do on mission today?
1: One of the most significant ways that this thinking contributes to and really can change our perspective on the work of missions today is to understand mission as beginning in the garden and beginning with Adam makes mission fundamentally a proactive endeavor. Um, I think the way that we often conceive of missions nowadays is as a reactive response to the presence of sin in the world. And, and, and obviously there is a sense in which the, the, the call of the gospel and the offer of salvation through repentance and faith does bring rescue to sinners who are lost and and separated from God to be sure. But when we don't start at the beginning of the story, we can begin to think that, well, when someone is uh, justified, that that's sort of the, that's the end of the story that, well, we were lost and now I'm found and then great. And now I can, you know, as long as I live a holy life, I'm going to die and go to heaven. And then that's sort of that. That's the goal is to just get people out of hell Whereas when we begin with Adam, we see that God has an actual mission for this earth, for creation, not simply a mission to rescue people from hell, but rather to manifest his glory throughout creation. And so what this means is, is in my mind, a couple of things. One is that as we conceive of the work of missions today, we should be thinking proactively rather than reactively. And what I mean by proactively is we need to ask the question, well, if God's mission, the Missio Dei, is for his kingship to be represented to the ends of the earth, that is throughout all creation. And if the way that that is executed now is by reaching every, all the families of the earth, as he promised Abraham, or all the ethne, as Jesus says in the Great Commission, that the actual international outreach of the gospel is, a, is not an end in itself, but is a means to the end of filling the earth comprehensively in order that God's, Kingship will be recognized everywhere. So what this means is that we ought to be, as the church, big C, the church of Jesus Christ, proactively in in viewing where in the world geographically and ethnolinguistically is God's kingship not being adequately represented through his church. It changes the dynamic of a missionary from, say, being a rescue worker seeking to save lost souls to having a, what I call a theocentric motive. Um That is that we are fundamentally uh, ambassadors of the great divine king who are going out and proclaiming the supremacy of his reign. Now, in so doing, we we offer people say you are you are in rebellion against the great king, against God. His reign is coming, he is spreading throughout the earth. He is gracious. He calls you to repent and submit to him and receive his gracious forgiveness, but then you need to show your allegiance to him. And so it makes the missionary a proactive agent. And then what it also does is it means that when someone comes to faith, that they, that is not the end of the story. That's actually the beginning. They're actually resuming their original ontological function as a human being. That is, they are now finally, because they are submitting to the king and representing his kingship, they actually um, resume their role as a God representer in this world because they're no longer rebelling against the king if that makes sense.
0: I think that's incredibly helpful because I think that we are predisposed to think of the great commission as purely evangelization. And that was the big I think catchword of 20th century missions was was evangelization, not just evangelism, but rendering the whole world evangelized. The great commission is not just an evangelist imperative. It, it continues after the point of evangelism. And uh, there's a lot of talk of that today. Yeah, I, I don't think that's a super revolutionary thought for every listener. Well, of course, people need to be discipled after that. But we still have this thought, especially with unreached people groups, that when that last person in that last tribe has access to the gospel and just hears it and and responds to it, then that's going to be the moment that, that Christ is going to return to earth. Rather than thinking, how can we comprehensively not only not only get people through the point of conversion by the Holy Spirit's power, how do we move them into a life of Christ likeness? And how can we, you know, spread the glory of God throughout the earth after that point? It doesn't, it doesn't stop at that point. Evangelism is the beginning of that. You're getting at that and it's obvious, but we don't mm. think that way. We think that missions is is purely the the base minimum, get everyone exposed to the gospel and then leave the rest up to God. And that it's,
1: it's fundamentally not that. Yes. Yes. It's a, it's a much more comprehensive endeavor. And I think if, if someone were to read the book, that, that would be one of the, the one of the takeaways that I would want someone to have is that we have made the work of missions uh, primarily an anthropocentric endeavor. And again, it's not, it's not that we shouldn't have concern for the, for the fate of the lost or desire to see people saved. Obviously, we should have compassion for those who are outside of Christ, absolutely. And yet that ought not be our, uh, I would argue, our most fundamental rationale for engaging in, in missions. And that it actually should be a theocentric rationale, and and really holding that rationale, then that's really what, at least for me personally, provides me the fortitude to endure through difficulty. Because if my if my work as a missionary was at least just for me emotionally and existentially was kind of grounded on my love for the people to whom I am seeking to minister, that that has a that has an end date on it in the sense of I'm a finite human, I'm fallen, people disappoint yeah. us people frustrate us <laughs> the way that we view people can change sort of you know can sway with the wind and when things get tough there are times yeah. as a missionary you know that you're frustrated with the people that you're trying to minister to <laughs> and if you're, you're yeah. your heart beating for them is what is driving you again right. that, that, I'm, 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 I don't want to be misunderstood i'm not trying to say that's a bad thing i mean i and I'm, personally i love the japanese people but that that is that is shaky ground and when things get tough then oftentimes you know people that cannot be strong enough to to sustain somebody whereas if our calling and if our work and if our passion is grounded first and foremost in our commitment to god and to his glory that there's nothing that can yeah. shake that there's
2: so there's so many things i want to ask you and there's so many good things in the book i people are just going to have to get it and, and and read it so i i want to skip ahead toward the end of the book um, you, you argue, you, you kind of talk about different ways that we approach the gospel. And I think this gets to evangelism and the way we start applying this to even evangelism and church planting. You argue that we do better to summarize the gospel instead of two major components that we typically do to four. Filling the earth as God's representatives, which you've talked about. Um, being grateful uh secondly, understanding we are sinful under judgment and unable to fulfill our mission that God created us for. Thirdly, Jesus died for us and brought our bought our forgiveness. And I'm kind of summarizing these. Uh, And fourth, Mm -hmm. in our forgiven state, we are we are reconciled to God and restored in order to fulfill, fill the earth as God's representatives. So if, if you were to just kind of sum that up for us and you've done that all throughout, but I just want one more time. Why is this significant, a significant difference? from the way that the gospel is typically summarized. Um, what is different about this approach than the ways you've seen it typically summarized? And why do you think, how, how will that transform the way we think about uh, evangelism and missions in general?
0: Yeah. Cause I think a lot of people that hear that think, well, no, I've heard the gospel presented that way. That, that sounds, you know, like the way that it's done, but that's probably not the case.
1: In my experience that, you know, the reason I have that in that section at the end is over the years, I mean, I've grown up in the, in the, in the evangelical church in North America I've you know, was involved in campus ministries when I was in college and, um, have been to varieties of missions conferences and read books on evangelism and just heard it done, of course, like, um, I imagine, you know, all of our listeners will, and, uh, you know, obviously there are exceptions to this, but in my experience, at least by and large, the way when people talk about, okay, how do we evangelize or how do we share the gospel? You often hear, well, you have to give the bad news before the good news. That is, it, the way things start is we are sinners mm. who are who deserve judgment. But the good news is that God has provided forgiveness by sending his son Jesus to die on our behalf. And so if we will repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus, we can have assurance of full forgiveness and know that now we are, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll rather than going to hell, we'll go we'll go to heaven. Is uh, you know, in, in broad strokes, how how the good news of Christianity is often communicated, and that's there, there's not a statement in there that is is untrue. But in my in my estimation, it's it's not the full story. This is like if we had a if we had a a, a play, you know, a drama. With four acts, and we have stepped into Act number two, right, right there, and and we've gone on to Act number three, and we've left out Act one, we've left out the beginning, and we left out the end. And uh, what I mean by that is, if we start with the recognition of who we are and where the Bible starts in talking about who we are, we realize that we as human beings have a a purpose to our existence. We have a mission, just as humans, and that's act one, which is essentially the, the creation mandate um, and our status as God's image. And well, what has happened is we have rebelled against that. Now we're into act two. And that's where we often start is act two. Well, the problem is that when we start in act two, we think that act three is the, is the finish because that, that provides the, the solution to the problem in act two. Um, and so we kind of compress or truncate um, our expression of sort of the gospel story or the significance of the gospel into you are a sinner, but through Jesus, you can be saved, period. Now I'm saved. right? Um, and then it ends. Whereas if we begin in act one and say, well, we have been created and designed for a mission to fill the earth as God's representatives, act one. Well, the problem, act two, we are sinful, But in God's grace, act three, we have been forgiven through Jesus. Well, that then moves us naturally to say, well, because of that, then we're in act four and that, that, that makes act four. That is we, we are, we are enabled again to function as God's representatives as image because now we worship him and that connects very directly and organically to act one to the beginning. And what that means is that for the Christian the work of missions is not some kind of optional addendum to the church.
0: So is every Christian a missionary then? Because if missions is simply fulfilling the creation mandate and and living for the glory of God, you know, living to, mm. to know him and enjoy him forever. Right. Well, does that make us all missionaries at that point? What would you say?
1: Well, at at this point, we need to, to delineate some terminology, which... Um, again, which I do in in the first chapter and which we have not been doing, which has been fun in this, in this conversation, but it'd be helpful for people listening. So at, at this point we then need to delineate between the language of mission with no S and then the work of missions uh, with an S, at least the way that we use that term in North America. So mission, I would argue has always been the same throughout all of biblical history and into now that is starting from the Genesis one creation mandate, um, The mission of God's people has always been to fill the earth and to represent the fact that God is king over the entire earth. Now, when we talk about missions now, the way that that term has been used historically has been to uh, refer to what what is sort of the the expansionistic work of the church. That is the branching out into uh, peoples or places um, where there is no sufficient indigenous gospel witness. Um, So William Carey, for example, um, distinguished uh, the work of missions based on a a people group's access to the gospel. Um, There are people, you know, everywhere who don't believe who are non-Christians, but not everybody equally everywhere in every people group has sufficient access to the good news of Jesus. And so I, I use the term missions in that more classical sense of referring to the expansionistic work of establishing a witness to the gospel uh, among peoples or in places where there is no such witness, or where it is very weak, and I and I should say because I'm I'm quoting almost verbatim, this is uh, missiologist Michael Goheen's definition of missions. But I don't want to; <laughs> I've memorized it, so I'd, I want to be sure to give him credit. <laughs> um, I would say that for the church now, every Christian is part of the mission of God's people. Mm, yeah, but the specific work of missions, mm-hmm. at least as I believe it is best and most helpfully defined, um, involves the expansionistic work of extending the witness of the gospel in among people groups where there is no such sufficient indigenous witness. And so in that sense, not everybody is engaged in missions as a goer, yeah. as, as one who is like for, so for Paul, you know, Paul in Romans fifteen twenty he says, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, unless I be building someone else's foundation. That was Paul's ambition. Um, but someone like Timothy who stays and pastors a church, his, his particular vocational call was distinct, um, so I would say that every Christian is involved in the mission of God's people. Every Christian in one way or another should be involved in the work of missions. But I think it's unhelpful to refer to every Christian as a missionary simply because we need some sort of language to distinguish between the expansionistic work of extending the borders of, of the church, so to speak, ethno-linguistically, and right. the other aspects of the mission of God's people. Cause part of our mission is also worship mm-hmm. part of it is discipleship. Mm-hmm. Part of it is mercy ministry. I mean, there's other elements sure. other than the expansionistic kind of arm. Um, I knew- so I, I would distinguish, I mean, that, that's obviously that, that, that thinking is in contention as well, but I think we run pretty significant risks when we conflate all of that terminology, because then we run the risk of actually not fulfilling our mission of filling the earth.
2: Well, you agree with us. And so obviously you're brilliant and you couldn't have said <laughs> it better. So we couldn't have. Yeah, it's always
0: nice. <laughs> to bring it together for people stateside involved in sending missionaries, for people on the field going, for people supporting through prayers and for their giving, what do you hope them to gain from that insight? The fact that it is an extension of that original uh, mandate given to Adam, what, what is the practical, you know, how do I take that in my daily life benefit of that
1: for you? the great commission, it is it is a command, but it is a command that is representative of an intrinsic reality of who we are as God's people. And what, what I mean by that is, um, you know, Jesus gave all sorts of commands, you know, the New Testament, mm-hmm. gives all sorts of commands of things that we should do, uh, should be about. And And of course, if God commands us to do something, we ought to do it. And But at the same time, there is because the the Great Commission and the work of missions is grounded in the creation mandate. And I realize in this podcast, listeners, you know, we've skipped over all of the argumentation to kind of draw the dots of connection. And so I I just have to say that um, uh, I I realize that might not be substantiated. You got to go by the book.
2: That's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly.
1: But all I have to say is presuming that that argument is sound. Um, that, that with the Great Commission being grounded in the creation mandate, and the creation mandate is connected to our identity as God's image, what this means is that the, 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 the impulse toward expansionistic representation of God's glory is part and parcel of who we are as human beings. And as the church, really, you could say that we are um, literally the redeemed and functional human Representation of humanity in in this world—we're the only ones who are functioning the way that human beings are ultimately designed to function, as God representers. Mm. And so, what this means is that the Great Commission, um, even though it is lodged as a command, there's actually an intrinsic reality to our identity that that command is sort of springing off of. And so, uh, another way of saying this, and and really what I also love to do when I talk about the Great Commission is, you know, when we talk about the Great Commission, we often We just, we only talk about Matthew 28 and we don't realize that, well, there's a commission at the end of Luke and a commission at the end of John and a commission at the beginning of Acts. And, and these various commissions have different emphases, but in Matthew, it's actually the only one where there's a command to go, um, In Luke, the only command, the only imperative given is to stay. (laughs) Interestingly, (laughs) he says, stay in the city until you receive power from on high. Right. And in John, the only command is to is the verb to receive. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And in Acts one, you know, where he says, you know, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. There's actually no command given. It's all indicative. He just says, you will be my witnesses. Mm.
0: And, that's, and I think that shows us the fact that it's a certain reality. Yeah. God is going to accomplish this. Jesus is the new and better Adam. He's going to lead his bride, his people to accomplish this, whether we always want to or respond to that altar call or not, because the day will come where the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. We couldn't have said it better. Uh, and we think that I think this is a, a great resource for people who, Uh, are looking to develop a biblical theology of mission. Maybe mission throughout their upbringing was this weird thing. Yeah, I don't want to be involved in that. The rest of Christianity is cool, but that's a little bit weird. And just showing that Christianity is fundamentally about missions. It's about God's mission and ours. And this is a good reminder of those foundational uh, truths. So Matt, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate your insights on this topic.
1: Well, thank you guys. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you having me.
0: To get more content, go to missionspodcast.com or check out abwe.org slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. To ask a question or suggest a topic, email alex at missionspodcast.com, and we'll see you next time on the Missions Podcast.